Well, please, if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to Mark chapter 1. We're starting in verse 21 uh, this morning. It's our custom to stand in recognition that this is not simply uh, the work uh, and the author of man, but a divinely inspired work. So let's stand and hear the word of God. Father, we cry out to you and ask that this word might be sown like seed into our hearts, that neither the pressures and temptations of life would uh, crowd it out, that you would grant, Lord, it would not be stolen uh, from us, but that our hearts would be prepared by your Spirit, soft places for that word to be sown, that it might grow up and bear fruit in accordance with your purposes, ten, twenty, even a hundredfold. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And they went into the synagogue, into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately uh, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. You may take your seats. The Gospels are like 
biographies. And we enjoy biographies because they give us a look into the life of someone notable, someone who intrigues us. We want to know what life was like for them. And uh, we want to be able to imagine what it might have been like uh, to uh, be with them, especially at those important moments uh, in their lives. And this is what the Gospels give to us. Jesus' life is so multifaceted that one gospel simply isn't rich enough and can't capture the totality of who he is. And so we have four, each written from its own perspective. And each gospel is written in its own uh, style. Mark's gospel is written in a series of scenes. It's kind of like what we experience when we watch uh, a film. And the pace is furious. Mark moves from one scene uh, to the next, and he links them with the word immediately. In fact, immediately occurs four times in the 11 of the verses I read uh, this morning. And presenting Jesus this way highlights action. Jesus is a man of action. And here we have, in what I've read, uh, four scenes in total. And three of them all take place in a single day. In other words, this is a day in the life of Jesus. This is what you would encounter on a typical day had you been uh, with Jesus. And they form a coherent uh, picture. They reveal Jesus' authority. Now, the word authority, well, it doesn't sit well with us uh, It doesn't sit well for a couple of reasons, very understandable ones. One is that we see authority abused all around us in almost every possible arena. And often the people in authority seem to be out for themselves. They use their authority to benefit themselves. But Jesus' authority doesn't oppress people. He doesn't exploit or use people. No, his authority is exercised to restore our humanity. Every one of the scenes in this text we've read this morning show us Jesus making people whole, making them more uh, human. Now, the day begins in the synagogue. It's the Sabbath, and Jesus has along with him Simon and Andrew, James, and John, and they uh, enter the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a very prosperous town. It's located on the Lake of Galilee. It's very close uh, to a uh, major highway, ancient highway. And in the first century, the harbor was quite large. There was a walkway, a promenade, that was 2,500 feet long, and it had an eight-foot-wide seawall. Uh, that protected it, and there were piers that extended out over 100 uh, feet into the sea. And one of the evidences of the wealth is the synagogue that's been discovered there. It was made of gleaming white imported uh, limestone. And archaeologists, having found it, have dug under it. It dates to the 4th century, and they know that because of the coins and some other things that were found on top of it. And then uh, underneath that, there is a basalt uh, uh, layer 
that's the temple, excuse me, the synagogue that Jesus himself came to in Capernaum. And in every synagogue everywhere, it was laymen uh, who would uh, speak to the congregation about the meaning of the scriptures that were read. And so Jesus, like any man, takes his uh, turn teaching in the synagogue and people are amazed because of his authority. He teaches as one who has authority directly from his Father in heaven, and not like the scribes who cited various rabbis. And his teachings interrupted, interrupted by a man with an unclean spirit who confronts Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, this should shock you, because here we have an unclean spirit in a sacred space at a sacred time, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath. Now, demonic possession is the satanic counterfeit to the indwelling and infilling of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit comes to indwell believers to make them more human, more holy, they might flourish as uh, God designs. But demons uh, come uh, to take control of them in order to steal, kill, and destroy what's human in them. When the demon cries out, what have you to do with this? What he's saying really is, you're attacking us. He sees Jesus teaching as a, as a, a frontal assault on his territory. He uses the word us because the demon perceives that Jesus is attacking not just him, but the entire kingdom of darkness. The rightful king of humanity has come, and he's come to reclaim what is his. And the demon uses Jesus' name in the same way that actually Jewish exorcists uh, did in that day, believing that using a person's name gave you power and control over the situation in that person. Kind of like what my mother did when she called out Richard Lindsay Holmes. She was asserting her parental authority, usually because I was in trouble. Uh, With the authority of the creator, Jesus commands the demon to come out of him and he leaves the man immediately. Jesus is giving this man his life back and people are utterly amazed. They're amazed by Jesus' authority. It's about the quality of his teaching that Mark notes, the manner in which he teaches. Jesus' authority is not that of Uh, charisma or personality or celebrity, which we attribute a lot of authority to. It's not like the the scribes, the the teachers of the law who were scholars, and so they had their credentials, they had uh, their degrees. No, Jesus' authority is self-authenticating. His word is self-authenticating. Now, for you boys and girls, bananas are self-authenticating. What I mean by that is if you peel this banana open and have a bite, and there's a bunch of them back there uh, that you can have later, um, you will know immediately that it's a banana and not a lemon. There will be no question in your mind. And Jesus' word has the same quality. 
if you will receive it and act on it, you will in fact experience its power and recognize that its authority comes from the heavenly Father. Now, Jesus silences the, uh, the demon here, and we need to think a little bit about uh, demons. People have one of two views of demons in general. Either they dismiss them, they've bought into their disinformation campaign that they do not exist, or they're utterly fascinated uh, by them. And many Christians who are fascinated by them actually turn to fictionalized accounts of spiritual warfare to get their picture of what that world is like. That's a very unreliable uh, source of information. Of course, we need to turn to the Bible But in fact, when we do, most of us are drawn, well, to the most, uh, well, spectacular encounters that Jesus has with them. And that means that we might miss, in fact, how it is in rather ordinary ways that people open their lives up to demonic influence. The scriptures uh, point to, well, mundane things like harboring bitterness, anger, jealousy, being unforgiving, which results in divisiveness and the refusal to forgive. One place you can see this is in the story of Saul and David in 1 Samuel 18. You can check that out in detail later. But this is the story in which Saul begins his downfall. David has just defeated Goliath, and the maidens are singing. Saul has slain his thousands, and David, his tens of thousands, are celebrating his victory over uh, Goliath. And Saul becomes very, very angry. And the very next day, we're told, in in a mysterious way, that his jealousy and deep anger open his life up to the presence of an evil spirit, which results in him seeking to kill uh, David that very day. Now, many conflicts in churches and among Christians begin with one person who is jealous of another, of perhaps the attention that they have or uh, uh, perhaps the gifts uh, that they exercise. Turf battles in churches, power struggles at work, and self acts of self-preservation and promotion produce all sorts of social destructive behaviors. Manipulation, character assassination, uh, destructive uh, uh, competition, evil scheming, and uh, gossip. And we might be tempted to say, well, that's just the ordinary course of human life. But James offers a very different perspective. In chapter 4, he writes about two kinds of wisdom, and he says this in part. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, spiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambitions exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. You see, we may be encountering the demonic in other people when they're uh, so captivated to their anger that they can't forgive. Or when we see that they're just so filled with selfish ambition 
that they can't humble themselves and admit when they're wrong, or they're not open to reason. These are all marks of something dark in us. Now, there's something else to see. You you may have noticed Jesus silences the demon. We're told he silences the demons later when the town shows up. And at the very end of the reading, we see he silences the leper uh, who's been healed. And this is very puzzling uh, to many, many people, perhaps uh, to you. After all, they're telling other people the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. Isn't that the point of Jesus' mission? Yeah. Well, this is a feature of Jesus' ministry that Mark will return to again and again. And more than 10 times we'll read that he silences demons, he silences people who were healed, twice he will silence uh, his own uh, disciples. Why does he do this? Why does he seemingly work at cross purposes uh, with himself? Well, there's several things uh, that could be observed and noted about this, and we'll come back to this some more, but, but here's a couple. Jesus doesn't want the demons to be his publicity team. You see, most political candidates don't want the opposition candidate to define who they are, and that's certainly true here. But there's another part of this. Jesus uh, does not want... Uh, to fit the mold of the people of that time that they had about the Messiah. He is not the Messiah of the expectations, the the popular expectations of the people. A military deliverer, that's not who he is. And so he doesn't want to be known that way. And there's something much uh, deeper here. Jesus is self-consciously the servant of the Lord that Isaiah foresees and writes about. And he's defined by restraint and humbleness. A bruised reed he will not break, Isaiah writes. In another passage about the servant, we're told that he's concealed in hiddenness. This servant motif is uh, one of the reasons why God's son channels his authority and power in hiddenness. It's, It's not the expression of God's authority, Christ's power that actually changes hearts. Jesus won't have any followers who were coerced into following him or who become followers because of miraculous display of power. He doesn't want allegiance based on amazement and astonishment. No, the faith of his disciples has to be elicited by his humility and ultimately his suffering. Because if you won't receive Jesus in his humility and suffering, you in the end will not receive him in his power and glory. That's so important. Because what we're seeing, and Mark is going to see this, say this to us again and again and again, is that the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. The way of the kingdom is cruciform. And the essence of following Christ is to take up your cross and follow him. Uh, The kingdom advances not through amazing acts of power. They're but signs that the kingdom is present in the king. But the kingdom is very unlike uh, a display of uh, power. The second scene takes place uh, in Peter's house. 
Jesus' authority is revealed in uh, healing his mother-in-law, who has an acute fever. And with our perspective, we naturally think of this as an act of compassion, and it is that, but Mark doesn't tell us that. Mark wants us just to see that Jesus touched her. And if we were Jewish from the first century, we'd realize that he just broke a whole set of taboos. Touching an unrelated woman was an offense. It was a break of a social norm. No rabbi ever touched a woman he wasn't related to. Touching a sick person makes you unclean. It was done only in times of necessity. And healing someone on the Sabbath was viewed by the rabbis of that day as a violation of the fourth commandment. That it was viewed as an act of work that should be uh, waited on later. And so Jesus, in breaking these taboos, is showing us that he's controversial. And if you were to follow Jesus around day after day, you would see he was very controversial. He stirred things up. He didn't mind uh, making offenses. He crossed all sorts of lines that were not to be crossed. When the Sabbath ends that evening, they wait because it's not to walk during the Sabbath. Word, though, has spread, I guess people calling out uh, from one window uh, to the next. And so all the sick and all the demonized are brought uh, to Jesus and he makes them whole. His authority here is restoring people. He's giving them life. But this restoration points to a greater restoration. And that's the restoration of a relationship with God. This healing makes that possible. And apparently it does for this woman. She gets up to serve them. Now the word used here is uh, uh, diakonos. It's the word that we use actually to describe the office of deacon. And it's the word that Jesus uses to describe himself when he said the Son of Man came not to be served, uh, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It's this word that Jesus uses when he talks about the nature of greatness. Servants are great. And so this woman is shown to be an ideal disciple. You might think she's just being sent out to the kitchen to work, but she's not. She's showing exactly what it looks like to be a disciple. Jesus elevates women. He shows them great honor wherever he goes. Unlike the rabbis of that day, and really much Jewish culture then, he thought they should learn. He names them among his disciples. Indeed, they are the first witnesses to his resurrection. Now, The church, as you probably know today, is tarnished by scandals that involve sexual abuse. And the vast majority of them are perpetrated by men against women. And many of those men are staff workers or pastors or church leaders. And when this is exposed, most of the time it is the men in the church who seek to cover this up and to silence the voice of women. Well, we should be grieved that this is so, and this is not just happens out somewhere else with some other uh, group of people. This touches uh, our uh, uh, denomination. Uh, my own daughter was in a church where the pastor frequently sought 
uh, encounters alone uh, with women in his uh, congregation. And finally, after a long period, uh, he has been uh, brought uh, to uh, trial on that. You see, this damage erodes our ability to speak to a matter that we desperately want to talk to uh, people today about. And, and that is the issues of the biblical Christian ethic. Uh, the, in particular, sexual orientation and gender identity, which are so front and center. You see, as long as our house is in such a disarray, no one's going to listen to us about this. We have no standing with people. You see, we have to ask the question, are we honoring women in the church? The honor that women have in Western culture was birthed out of what Jesus did. But sadly, the church isn't following Jesus at every point in this. The third scene is Jesus alone with the Father. Jesus is seeking solitude in order to commune with his Father. He slips away uh, to a place where he won't be disturbed, to something he delights in, to be with someone he longs to be with. Now, for Jesus, being alone with the Father uh, in his full humanity is a place of refreshment and strength, of wisdom and getting perspective on his mission. And if you spent a day with Jesus, you would often find he's gone in the early hours. He's disappeared. He's out spending time alone with God. This is something what Mark is telling us ought to mark our lives as disciples. We need uh, ourselves to prioritize time uh, with God. For him, it was uh, the thing of first importance. And if we're honest, it's challenging uh, for us. I know it is for me. One of the challenges is our intent and purpose in drawing uh, near to God. Often uh, we spend God, time with God in order to have a transaction. You know, we call that transaction often prayer. Uh, we come to God and, and tell him this is what we want him to do. Uh, don't you see this is happening? You need to get involved. Uh, don't you see this person over here? Do something uh, for, uh, for them. And of course, we should bring our requests and supplications and intercessions. Uh, but often, if this is the only thing or even the main thing that's happening when you spend time alone with the Father... Uh, it's, uh, well, you're missing what Jesus is doing with his time. He's communing with the Father. That's relational and not transactional. Just the way you spend time with a friend or friends over dinner. You invite them over to dinner, not to conduct business, but just to enjoy uh, being with them. The second challenge is, well... It's this thing in my pocket here. So t about 20 years ago, the church I served thought I needed one of these, and so they bought me an iPhone. They said it was so I would become more efficient. And of course, for many years, uh, since I wasn't accustomed to having this thing, uh, it, it didn't change anything in my life very much. But today, many years uh, later, I find myself drawn magnetically to it first thing in the morning. You know, I have to check this, and I want to know what's happened uh, there. And 
oh, the worst thing I can possibly do is open up my church email account. Uh, nothing <laughs> uh, takes away my uh, communion with God uh, more quickly than looking at that. But it might be for you the news, or it might even be, you know, what's happened on uh, Instagram uh, since you looked at it last at 10 o'clock at night. Do you need to make some changes? Well, I do. I have to fight this at this uh, point. It's also possible there's something else that afflicts a lot of people today, and and perhaps you. It's hard to admit this, but uh, maybe you don't want to slip away and just be alone with the Father. Could it be that there is something you prize more than you prize being with him? Maybe it wasn't always that way. Perhaps you need to recover your first love. It could very well be that your appetites and desires are disordered. Happens to all of us. And you may need some help getting them reordered. It could be a trusted friend or perhaps an elder or might even risk talking to a pastor. So the scene then shifts. And uh, you might miss what's going on here. Simon Peter, with some others, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, don't you know that everybody's looking for you? That's a rebuke. It's a mild rebuke. But what Peter is saying is, what are you doing here? You're needed elsewhere. And uh, the word uh, seeking, looking for you, in Mark is used about ten times, and it always has a negative connotation. You might think seeking is a good thing. But actually in Mark, what people are seeking is to determine Jesus' mission and to control him, not to submit to him and follow him. And so the disciples see that Jesus is attracting the crowds, and they do what we would do. They think it's time to build the audience. Let's build a platform, as we say today. That'll get the message out. Jesus' response to them shows they don't understand his mission. The disciples, like the crowds, don't understand their main uh, need. They don't understand really what Jesus has come to do. And it's not healings and exorcisms. Those things are secondary. The main need is the reason that Jesus came out of heaven. It's to preach. It's to preach the good news. It's to bring salvation. Healing and preaching are not competitive activities. But healing is just one of the signs that confirms the message and the authority of the messenger, that displays Jesus' authority to do the things he does. In the story of the leper, every good Jew knew that only God could heal a leper. He's displaying his authority in that. But Luke records this scene as well. And if you were to put them side by side, you'd notice that Luke doesn't call out Peter, but Mark does. Why is that? Well, it's because Peter is the source for this story, and Peter is pointing out his own folly. This won't be the the only time Peter does this. In fact, at the very apex, the highest point in the gospel, when Peter rightly says who Jesus is, and Jesus goes on to say, "Uh, my mission is to go to the cross, Peter says, no, that can't possibly be what you're called to do, and Jesus rebukes him sharply. Now, there's a couple of lessons here, and the first is this. Discipleship is not attempting to control what God's work is. Discipleship is following God's Son. 
What Jesus does will not be determined by the desires of the masses, but rather the central purpose for which he came. And we need to remember that. And probably most of you would be hesitant to think of yourselves as rebuking Jesus, saying to him, what are you doing? But then again, maybe, well, I don't know, maybe you're like me. Maybe you think, well, you're the king of kings and lord of lords, so why don't you move Putin out of power and end this terrible war in Ukraine? Or uh, why don't you straighten out all that's wrong in our uh, country? Why do you allow so much evil and confusion? Surely uh, you could change that. Or you think, you know, as the head of the church, you know, your management is lacking a little here. <laughs> you know, there's some things you need to attend to. Why aren't these uh, things better? Or you may even think, well, I, I want what Jesus wants. I want people to respond to the gospel. And you think, Lord, why don't you make people softer and more responsive? You see, we can be just like the crowds and like Peter, and we can really be moved by what we want. Jesus uses his authority to restore our humanity. He gives us life by freeing us from evil, by giving us a healing that restores us to God so that we might know the delight of communing with the Father. That's what draws us to follow him. It's not his displays of power. It's that he uses his authority to restore us. It's in his words that we find life. In him is life to be found. And when you taste that, He becomes the thing that you delight in and softens you so that you yield and submit and follow and lay down all your demands and really all your claim that you can make yourself right with God. You lay down all your deadly doing and trust in what he alone has done. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for these uh, uh, words that Mark has written under the inspiration of the Spirit. Oh, burn into our hearts and minds in the deepest level this picture of Jesus, that we too might be drawn to him, whether for the first time or afresh today. For we ask it in his name. Amen.